the Health Tech listeners. I'm your host this week, Justine Abson. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas and best practice across health and social care. You might be able to tell we've got a bit of a special episode this week as it's Christmas. So we're going to take a look back over the podcast episodes we've done since we launched in April this year um, and have a look at some of our industry speakers across health and social care. In terms of today, I'd like to talk about LFPSE um, and basically the purpose of it, what we're trying to do with LFPSE, what problem we're we trying to solve and, and ultimately what are going to be the overall benefits to the NHS. So uh, we, as uh... Uh, patients, the, the national patient safety team at NHS England and NHS Improvement, we have the remit to uh, to collect patient safety information from all uh, providers of NHS funded care across uh, England. For the last uh, almost like 20 years, we've been doing that, relying in, in what is today kind of a very old legacy systems, one being STIES, that's been around for about 24 years. And uh, the other one is the NRLS, so the uh, National Reporting and Learning System that has been around for 19 years. So a lot has changed in terms of technology. We're trying to uh, move away from this manual process uh, and make sure that things can can, uh, happen in the background where uh, uh, those records are shared automatically. So this is one main thing that is going to uh, uh, give a lot of or release a lot of uh, yeah. uh, time from um, staff within those organizations. The outcomes and and the data integrity and the fact that you're getting the information faster and you know, in theory it's more accurate. What does that now enable you to do that you couldn't do with NRLS? So if I'm if I'm an NHS organization and I'm supplying this information to you. You know, ultimately, what's what's the outcome for this? What's what's the what's the what's the real driver behind it? Before, because of all this delay, it would take a long time for us to be able to create some any kind of analysis because uh, we need to allow to have the right volume to start uh, 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 deriving insights and making assumptions from what the signals we are receiving. As now everything is real time. So these insights can be available much quicker. Paul, I'll just uh, bring you in if I may. Um, so, I mean, you're the first first trust to go live. So, well done. Um, uh, so, after just listening to Marcus there, and obviously you've you've, um, as I said, just gone live with it. Um, yeah, what, what does that make you think about then, in terms of how you're um, kind of submitting data and the benefits you might see as an organization yeah i mean we we've already seen from from day one uh we've saw the um reduction in administration um that marcus was talking about so as soon as somebody submitted an incident um it we we know it's gone to lfpsc we don't we don't need to do the uh the uploads and and all the um the, the bits that we needed to do with the nrs so we've seen massive benefits there already in terms of that the things Marcus was mentioning about learning from that data and using those learnings to then bring back into the organisation and to implement improvements. That that vision, then, I, I think I'd be interested from a from your perspective on that community and 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 how you would tie into that vision because I think that's the goal, isn't it? Obviously, we're we're talking about improving patient safety ultimately. Yeah, ultimately, that's the that's the goal to try and make the processes um, and and the care that we provide safer. Um, and make make it um, more efficient, 
um, all those sort of things. So that goal of, of being able to look at um, things from a national perspective and learn things um, that are happening across the whole of uh, NHS is uh, really beneficial. Um, and so getting that, like Marcus to say, getting that time back to be able to um, spend time on on looking at those sort of things and looking at what the learning is uh, are really sort of vital in doing that, really. Back to you then, Marcus. In terms of LFPSC, then what's next? So um, I know we've kind of talked about things like STICE. So what's what's the roadmap? What, what comes next? As more organisations come on board, so more data becomes available then more analysis uh, we will uh, switch on and types of analysis that we'll be able to to make. But we, we need more volume of data so to, to enable those functions. So we are doing a lot of work on that aspect as well as exploring uh, the use of machine learning okay. yep. to, to be able to generate those insights and also to monitor uh, data quality. In terms of today's session, then, guys, I thought uh, really interesting. Um, I'm conscious we're going to speak to Paul a little bit more on um, the, the the next episode. Um, so I'd just like to say um, thanks for joining us this week. So we're going to talk a little bit today about mental health first aid training. So firstly, Georgina, um, you're the trainer for mental health first aid at Curve Learning. Um, it'd be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about this and why there is such a need for first aid for mental health. We work in health and social care, so we've been delivering training on many different courses. But obviously the stress and strain of any kind of work life, especially in health and social care, there does tend to be quite a lot of sickness around that. And it's apparent about the stresses and strains of what the job entails. So we looked into doing mental health first aid um, as a training course. What's quite pleasing, if I'm honest, is that a lot of the customers that we do get onto our sessions are not from care. So it's, it is quite interesting in that. And I do think that with everything that's been going on in the world, there is definitely a need for looking out for somebody else. And this is why it's it's been really sort of worthwhile doing the courses. So every organisation, you know, has a first aid kit. They have trained first aiders on site, but it does feel like mental health first aid is still quite far behind. What do you think workplaces need to do to, to sort of tackle this and to make it more of a requirement? I think we really need to be readdressing the the duty of care in all workplaces. You know, we look at the well-being of a person. We look at the physical side of a person's well-being. Yet, I think we are missing out on that mental health well-being. And I think we do need to look into perhaps the way that HR is looked at, into dealing with you know, people's personal lives and taking that, it's not just that duty of care, nine to five, and, you know, whatever you do outside of work, that's your life. It's trying to incorporate it in. It has the impact of, of what people are going through in their own lives when they are coming into a workplace. Yeah, I think that why is really important, isn't it? You know, actually really getting down to the, the sort of the roots of the issue as well um, and, and really understanding where, where that comes from. Yeah, and I, I do think <clears throat> majority of people that I've spoke to, especially in HR, do want to look at it like that. But I suppose there are a lot of pressures on businesses to have a to have a, a good workforce and a reliable workforce. 
And it's interesting when we're looking at the subject of bank holidays being brought up, saying that we're having an extra one for the Queen's birthday. And then they're trying to look into putting this into play each year, purely and simply because of the the fact we're giving people days off as a bank holiday, it actually helps with the well-being, the uh, productivity of work, you know, so it's not looking at the quantity of how much we're going to do, but actually the quality of what we're going to do and the quality around the staff and supporting the staff. Could you give us an overview of what someone on the course could maybe take away from this? Yeah, I think when people come onto the course, they are obviously there because they want to become mental health first aiders. I think what a lot of people do take away from the course is their own reflection. But sometimes I think we look and think we couldn't help. We're not qualified to help. And I think with the course, it focuses, the course focuses such a lot on it's not there to diagnose an illness. It is just there to signpost and ensure that there is that chance of the hope of the recovery and everything. And it's it's just sort of focusing on just being there to listen to somebody can be as well as, you know, thinking that, oh my gosh, I'm gonna sort of get them to the doctors or anything. It's just that first point can be a huge step for somebody. And I do think a lot of people do reflect on their own prejudgments coming into the course. I know from my own experience, you know, I'd certainly recommend the the mental health first aid course, particularly for anybody that is in a, in a people focused role. Um, you know, I found it so informative and I definitely had a much better understanding of it in terms of how I could help someone in the future. So thank you very much for, for joining us and kind of talking about about, like I said, such a complex topic. So we're going to talk a little bit today about um, women's health um, and the series of papers that, that you're working on. So can you tell us a little bit more about why the series of work focusing on women's health in particular was started? Yeah, so, I mean, when I joined PPP in January 2021, we sort of, we're halfway through the pandemic at that point, and it's very clear that health inequalities have been, you know, exacerbated and particularly that burden was falling on women in terms of health outcomes, but also in terms of when everyone's stuck at home, you know, the amount of unpaid labour that women are doing as opposed to men. Um, And particularly, it just, it felt like it was the right time to do something. The first international women's report, um, which is titled A Women's Health Agenda, Readdressing the Balance, um, was published in March this year, um, coinciding nicely with International Women's Day. Um, So what does this report cover? So... I mean, women's health is actually can be quite a saturated space. So we wanted to do something that was not just another women's health report. And I don't sort of stereotype of women talking to other women moaning about women's issues. Do you know what I mean? That That's quite overdone. And so what we wanted to do, you know, there was nothing in what we were doing, which was reinventing the wheel. We were, you know, we were we were not trying to come up with anything fancy or innovative. We were just looking at the current health policies that were in place for women, and I suppose critically analysing them and going, you know, why is it that a woman, you know, has to get a prescription every time she wants a contraceptive pill when it's been around for 60 years? You know, why is it that, you know, a man can get a vasectomy, uh, a woman wants an abortion, she has to get, you know, two medical signatures on a, on a, on a form? So it was kind of just going over um, what was out there and how we could 
you know, produce good policy to kind of change that and change the dial slightly. Very few people know what's normal and what's not. I mean, you know, all I knew about a period when I when I was taught about them was not to get toxic shock syndrome. And I've never met a woman that's ever had it, <laughs> but I didn't know what was normal, yeah. you know. And so I think it's 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 that women themselves are not taught about their own bodies. You know, we're not educated on on what we should be looking out for, what's normal and what's not. And I think, so firstly, is talking about it um, is a way to remove that stigma. But I think as well, it's about um, getting the men on side too, you know, and I, that it's very easy for women to talk to their friends and sit in the pub and talk about, you know, their periods or, you know, whatever it is. But you need to talk to men about it as well, because ultimately, you know, the system we live in lots of men are in power so you need to get them on side as well um i think that's probably a key you know key thing that bit about talking about it is massive really i think as well we've seen that with davina mccall and this menopause you know she's a celebrity figure that said talking about the menopause for the first time and suddenly now everyone's talking about the menopause well it's, it's not new it's not like it's a new health condition do you know what I mean it's been around since the beginning of time and it's only now that people are it's in the public consciousness that this is a condition that women go through everyone will go through it you know and 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 people should be aware of it so you know I think you know the kind of waves of sort of women's health progress is being made but it's not consistent no one ever knows why why a woman's going to go and get an abortion yeah so it's to, to kind of be able to do it at home in the comfort of your home yeah and know that you know like you said like when it happens you're not on a bus you're not yeah you know in the car park or, exactly. or whatever that might be is yeah definitely feels like it will be a lot less traumatic for yeah. the, the woman involved as well yeah and I think the other thing is that you know we've seen particularly in America which is you know supposedly a liberal democracy uh, abortion is being legal uh, illegalized it's being made illegal in certain states yeah, so you can't ever take for granted women's health the gains that we've made we can't take them for granted because if somewhere like the US can then make abortion illegal you know no one's safe from it and you know the thing is is what what, what I always say is if you stop if you if you make abor- abortion illegal you're not going to stop women having abortions. Women are going to have abortions anyway, but they're, they're going to do it in an unsafe way and they're going to die, potentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't, you don't, if you make something more difficult, you don't stop it happening. Lottie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been great to have you and obviously to talk about such important topics that people don't feel comfortable talking about as well um, and I think this series of papers is just going to help raise that awareness and, you know, I for one will kind of take away talking to my friends more about about some of these issues. Um, so yeah, really appreciate you you joining us today. So is, have you ever had any or seen any kind of, or has anything stood out to you, like a standout moment where you've really impacted either a patient or an NHS worker or a healthcare worker? I've mentioned the duty of candour. It should never be talked about without mentioning one particular family and one particular man, actually, who's done more than anyone else to raise awareness of the need for that legal duty of candour. And um, it's a a man called Will Powell, who lost his son, Robbie Powell, um, over 25 years ago now, uh, through an avoidable incident where there was an attempted cover-up. And they've campaigned relentlessly, that family, and Will in particular, uh, and were kind enough to let us borrow Robbie's name 
for our campaign. We called it Robbie's Law, yeah. uh, which is the duty of candor. Amazing people, really, that they've had the strength mm. to do what they've done in a situation like that. Really strong. Yeah. It's just immense being able to mix with such strong and powerful people who've suffered such adversity and also to have had the privilege of working with some of the best doctors and nurses um, committed to patient safety that there are uh, and also i have to say also um, some of the best lawyers uh, who are committed to human rights uh, and, and justice for people who need it yeah it's really heartwarming to see how many people are dedicated to improving this whether they work in healthcare or not it's it's amazing like i'm inspired every day when i see it really and when we spoke i just i was really inspired by what you do and i definitely wanted radar healthcare to be a part of that and and be a part of that change that you're that i know that's gonna you're gonna impact essentially um how do other organizations like radar healthcare get involved and what is it that you look for in a partnership as well partners for patient safety is an initiative we've launched to actually demonstrate that industry and business uh, have an important role to play in patient safety which isn't given the status that it deserves and it's a corporate membership scheme that allows companies like yours but others also uh, in the medtech world to actually get involved with AVMA uh, to demonstrate that we're on the same wavelength that we're after the same things to demonstrate corporate responsibility um, corporate um, responsibility for doing good uh, in your space in society uh, because you know the income uh, from this scheme is also helping fund the work of the charity and at the moment we get no statutory funding so all the funding we get is we go out and get it or benefit from partnerships like this so we are appealing to any um, any companies who operate in the patient safety space um, if they feel it's appropriate to get involved to become one of our partners for patient safety and we think over time we'll become a really really powerful voice uh, where the voice of industry of medtech of patients and families combine to get really important messages across and i definitely am proud that we are part of that because I think it's really important and I think it's it's going to have the impact that we're hoping for um, in the future. And like you said, it's it's not going to happen overnight, is it? It's going to be a long process, but we're seeing steps being taken already. And this is the space to be in because we're going to have the biggest impact on people's lives, really. Our collaboration with you and potentially other companies as well, you know, demonstrates that any initiative like that can be helped and supported through good technology, through good services and products. Um, and doing that can actually make it easier for people to do the right thing. What would your advice be to um, people who want to step up and support patient safety more or campaign for patient safety, but are maybe a bit nervous to be that person to stand up and do it? People should seek out where they can get support. Now, in terms of patients and families, um, it's primarily AVMA, my charity, but there are other charities that they might be connected with also uh, that can give them uh, support uh, and confidence uh, and even training or mentoring to actually um, become 
a champion for patient safety and justice. And, and we're doing that a bit within our own organisation is actually promoting those individual champions for patient safety as well and supporting them. Um, but staff need that, that nurturing, that mentoring and support also. Um, so there are opportunities, um, you know, just identify where you can connect with the appropriate organisation, be it AVMA, be it the Doctors Association, um, be it NHS England and Improvement. Um, there are places for you to go. Well, honestly, it's been great to talk to you and I am a huge supporter of what you guys do. Um, I always will be. And I'm so glad that we can be a part of it and a part of that um, important work that you're doing. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Thank you for listening. Um, we're going to be back next week with a new, another special episode ahead of New Year. Um, if you have any questions for us or our guests, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com. And in the meantime, have a very Merry Christmas. Hold up. 